Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Hey, it's Mark, and I just wanted to say thank you. It's Thanksgiving here in the United States, and to celebrate and to show my gratitude for you, the Entre Architect community, we are offering half off on our four most popular products here at Entre Architect the hybrid proposal, the construction management course, the get focused productivity course, and our foundations, business forms, and checklists, all four of them 50% off. But listen, listen up. The offer is only available from Friday. That's today, November 25th, 2016 through Cyber Monday, November 28th, 2016. And it's only available, this is important, it's only available to subscribers at my free weekly newsletter, The Entree Architect Report. So watch your inbox for details. And if you're not subscribed, head over to entrearchitect.com slash newsletter uh, and get on the list before Monday, the 28th of 2016. Happy Thanksgiving and thank you for listening to Entree Architect Podcast. Entree Architect Podcast, episode 146. Welcome back to the Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage, and this is the podcast dedicated to a successful life as a small firm architect. Whether you have plans to someday start your own firm, whether you're in the process of launching a startup, or you might be an experienced small firm architect just trying to make a difference, this podcast is for you. My goal is to inspire you to build a better business so that you may pursue your purpose with passion and live the life of your dreams. Architecture and construction and interiors and furniture, this week's guest is a successful architect based in Austin, Texas, serving the high-end custom residential market. He started his firm with a single speculative project, and he grew that project into a $20 million integrated design-build firm. How does a $20 million design build firm work? How do they structure their fees? How do they communicate with one another? How do they ensure that every project is built to the exact standards promised by their powerful brand? This week at Entree Architect Podcast, design build is the future of architecture with architect Luis Houdiki. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is sponsored by True Style, the leader in high-end residential interior doors. Learn more at truestyle.com and Tanglewood Conservatories, 
combining the romanticism of 19th century glass architecture with state-of-the-art technology of today. Learn more at tanglewoodconservatories.com. Luis Hergi, welcome to the Entree Architect podcast. Thank you, Mark. Uh, it's nice uh, talking to you again. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to have you here. Finally, we've been trying to uh, connect here for a while. Um, you and I have have gotten to know each other through Cran. You're you're the president of uh, Hergi uh, Incorporated, which is a uh, architecture and interiors and design build, and pretty much you guys do everything. We're going to get into that. You're you you personally are a registered architect and a registered interior designer. Uh, very active in the AIA and the, and the local chapter as well as national. Um, you're a founding member of CRAN, the Custom Residential Architects Network. And we actually just spoke with Don Zuber yes, uh, last week. So this is sort of a, 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 a theme here with CRAN. Uh, we were talking up CRAN a lot last week. So anybody who wants to uh, learn more about CRAN, go back to the last episode. We, maybe we'll talk a little bit about it here today as well. But episode 145, I spoke with Don. Uh, and that's where we, you and I connected, uh, Luis. We connected uh, at Coran. Probably, we probably bumped into each other and maybe said hello at, at Charleston, uh, but then got to know each other a little bit in Minneapolis, uh, and then again this year in, in, in Sonoma, uh, and then also in National. We bumped into each other and spoke a little bit. And uh, I'm fascinated by what you do and how you do it. So I've uh, been hoping to get you here for a long time. So let's let's get into that a little bit. You, uh, you have a very successful design build firm, uh, numerous awards and recognitions, uh, and you have a, it's a very, very comprehensive firm. So before we get into all the details of what your firm does and how it does it, let's go back to your origin story. Let's go back to where you discovered architecture, what inspired you to become an architect, uh, and, and give us that story, that journey to where you find yourself today at Herrigi Incorporated. Oh, well, thank you, Mark. And first of all, I um, really want to thank you for inviting me to be a part of this. And um, I've been very impressed with your network and, and um, the things that you're doing for architecture. And as soon as I saw the word entrepreneur as part of it, 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 it totally uh, captured my attention. And, and I'm very excited to be here uh, uh, sharing with you all thank you. Uh, some of my story. And so to tell you a little bit, uh, I am originally from Mexico. Uh, I lived uh, all over the country. My father was in the highway department, so we moved around much like uh, the army people do around me, um, families. And so I got to visit many places in Mexico, which um, I've got a, a, a great exposure to great architecture in, uh, throughout the country, uh, especially a lot of great colonial uh, architecture. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, really discover uh, how exciting was uh, to me buildings. Uh, my father was a civil engineer, so the whole concept of construction was already sort of in my DNA. <clears throat> uh, but then I was very attracted for the artistic part of architecture and, and the beauty of architecture. In Mexico, um, I uh, enrolled in the University of Mexico um, in Mexico City in the School of Architecture. And within uh, two weeks of my first uh, uh, month in the School of Architecture, they went on strike. So, <laughs> so that's how I ended up in the United States because the strike went on for months. So I decided to come to Texas um, just to see maybe if I can learn some English. And uh, that turned into a career in architecture. <laughs> wow. uh, so I uh, went to school at Texas A&M, got a, a Bachelor in Environmental Design, and then a Master's in Architecture. Um, I was very fortunate that in my freshman year, um, my professor uh, on our, the first class of design studio uh, saw some of my work and asked me if I wanted a job with an architect, and I said, of course. Nice. And, and uh, so I, by the time I, I um, graduated with my master's, I had six years of experience working for about four different architectural firms. So I was loaded <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when I came out. Uh, and really wanted to um, uh, pursue. I, I had the opportunity to work largely in commercial, but one of the one of my mentors, uh, which was one of the professors at Texas A&M, uh, and I worked for the for this firm for the last um, you know during my master's, was a very entrepreneurial architect. As a matter of fact, he used to trade 
um, fees uh, for equity on projects. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and then additionally, uh, this particular architect started developing his own projects. And uh, so he was definitely somebody that influenced me hugely. Um, but additionally, the reason I, I got influenced in that direction of the entrepreneurial and the construction part of architecture was because in Mexico, as it is in many other parts of the world, uh, architects typically have their own construction companies and the consumer comes directly over to them for a building. You know, they, they don't come for sketches. Right. <laughs> Typically, so that that was a big influence uh, in background. I started um, uh, working for architects once I graduated, and within within two years, actually less than two years, a year and a half from uh, my graduation, um, I was ready to start my own firm. So I started doing a, uh, my firm here in Austin, Texas, uh, design only. But again, within a year or so of doing that. I really have the bug for started doing some construction and developing. So I uh, put together a little bit of money that I had in savings and found a lot, uh, put a contract on the lot that I thought it was for a duplex. As it turns out, I found out later on that the sellers didn't know that it was a fourplex lot and uh, went to it for a loan in 19, 1982. Uh, and the bank very gladly gave me a loan for 18% interest. <laughs> uh, and I just didn't know much about anything, but I, I, I really had a desire to uh, uh, to implement some of the design work uh, that I had been doing. So that was my first project in 1982. It's all a framing stage, and right there, the whole story starts for me um, of, of my practice. Uh, the, I just never looked back. Uh, and I went on and started with the money that I've got from that project, started buying some more lots and developing more houses. So the next four years of my practice uh, was doing a speculative um, homes in, in the market. And I knew at that point and learned very quickly that I was going to be losing all my clients that were doing design only because most of my clients were in fact developers and builders. And uh, so that the, that's how it went. At this point, I had an office in San Antonio also. So I started developing and building in Austin and San Antonio. Uh, we had a huge market crash here uh, in 1986 with a savings and loan, and loan um, mess. And of course, uh, we had to close our San Antonio office. Um, and But it kept going in here, and I was very fortunate to get some really great commissions during the recession. And uh, by the time the recession was over, Nearly, nearly five years later, uh, was a really deep, long recession back in the late 80s, uh, much worse than the one that we had here uh, recently. Uh, but I came up with a great portfolio out of that. And uh, so we kept uh, doing our design only. My practice, so not to tell you a little bit, not to tell you the background and the history, we currently um, have um, are practicing in Houston. We have an office in Houston. Uh, with architects, project managers, and a full staff. And of course, our uh, head office is here in Austin, and which we have also the large team of architects, interior designers, uh, estimators, and a full construction company. Uh, we do a lot of work in the Dallas area, so we spread over throughout the state of Texas with our practice of design build. We do about $20 million a year worth of uh, design and construction. And we kept that fairly steady for the last several years, and this year it seems to be a good year. We lined up all for 2017 already, so things are good. So I, my first my first question, Luis, is why why did you go to the design side? If you started as a developer and you were doing speculative and it was successful and you were growing that, uh, why go and and start serving clients? Sir, you mean serving clients on the construction part? Yeah, well, well, you said that you you did speculative work, right? You designed and built your own projects, and then and then sold them or 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 released them out. And uh, but but you also do uh, design build, right? For for clients, for for people who want to build homes, or do you only do speculative projects? Oh, okay, good question. I see. I see. Where your question uh, comes from. Very good question. In fact, as I mentioned to you, the first four years of my practice was strictly. Um, is, is strictly custom, I'm sorry, not custom, but actually speculatively. Right. 
and um and i loved it it was great we were selling at foundation stage at framing stage pre-selling life was good in the early 80s and then the recession came in and fortunately as i mentioned to you we got our first custom um customer uh, or client in 1986 as the bottom fell from under uh for all of us entrepreneurs so to answer your question uh, it was a lesson learned there that, you know, the speculative market and such has got such strong up, ups and downs. So I learned the lesson that mixing it with customs. So it, it came really fortu fortuitously for me because my custom business started going. And I, and I would say that part of the reason that I was able to start picking up the custom work is because I always emphasize design and, you know, great design in our work. So people start noticing and it start, we start becoming a brand. And so people start looking for us, which is the case for us today. Um, I'm very big on branding and our brand is very known and that's how we are able to spread over to other cities. Um, so I learned that a mix of both of the, of the uh, speculatively and the custom is good. And, and I would say that probably in the average over the last 15 years or so, our practices of somewhere in the neighborhood of about 20 to 20 to 25% speculatively and the rest of us custom. Now, if I had my brothers, I would probably do at least 50, 50, mm -hmm. but yeah. I think it's largely uh, just the capacity of our company. We, we got so much uh, good demand on the custom, which is, sort of burden the hand. Um, and But we use a lot of a speculative work as it's our research and development. That's when we do our thing. And, and incredibly enough, the next customs, they won what we did expectedly. Uh, so it, it, it balances very nicely. The combinations are, are really great. Uh, one of the things that we did, um, and it's been about 12 years ago that I started the interior design branch of our company because we were doing um, just the architectural part and the construction. I was able to build up a full construction company. Um, but I realized that the lack of control in the interiors was was hurting our brand. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's, that's what uh, influenced me to start that. I really didn't want to get into furniture. It was a little bit too much for me to chew on, but... Uh, sure enough, it was our first client that we offer interior design services. They said, okay, well, I need to, can you recommend somebody to do the furniture? And of course, uh, our interior design team were just kind of kicking me under the table. <laughs> and, <laughs> so we, we got started on that, even though I was a little scared about that. And it, I would say that it took us a couple of years to get, uh, you know, the strong confidence, um, and learn the lessons that you need to learn on every, just like I did when I got into construction. But uh, we have a really uh, great team. Uh, all of the projects that we do, we do all of the furnishings, uh, rugs, artwork, uh, every bit of accessory, uh, plants and everything else. So that's something else that we have a markup on, which is really uh, a really a great combination. Uh, one thing that I like to add to our story is that when I was doing design only, of course, I lived and died by my architectural fees only. Once I started adding the construction, I spread out a little bit more, you know, the, of what uh, the sustenance that could keep us going through uh, um, through our journey. Once I started also expanding geographically, it, it gave us additional cushions for different market uh, conditions and then finally adding the interior design that's sort of the cherry on top <laughs> to the combination and here that added an additional source uh, of income that that is spreads beyond once we finish the, the architectural design the construction and then lastly with the income that we get from uh, bringing the furniture to the house what what was that initial fear the the fear to to do furniture what what did that come from i mean if you do the interiors and you do construction and you do architecture what was your fear with the with the uh the furniture well i'll tell you mark it was identical to the same fear that i had 
when I first thought about launching into construction. There was absolutely no difference in there. It's just, it was an unknown thing. There's all, all, this, all this other people do such a great job. I don't know what I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. And it, I just jumped into it before we know it, you know, we're one of the top uh, interior designers in our areas. So um, it's, it's just that fear of what you haven't done and a little bit of insecurity, but just, uh, and, and again, that's the entrepreneurial spirit that kind of made me do the jump in there. And, and I'm very happy that, uh, that we did it as a group. Yeah, I think that fear is one of the things that keeps so many architects back from from taking that leap. I think so many of us want to do the construction side and the development side. And really, uh, obviously, money very often is a barrier. But if 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 there's a will, there's a way. And, and the, the biggest hurdle is that fear, is that fear of the unknown. Should I do it? Is it going to do I know how to do it? Do I know how to take that first leap? And I think what you said about being an entrepreneur, that is being an entrepreneur. You, sometimes you just have to take the leap knowing that you're going to figure it out. You know, jump out of the airplane and figure out how to get that parachute on before you hit the ground. Um, and, and you do. You figure it out. Absolutely. Hey, let's take a quick break here to say thank you to two of our platform sponsors here at Entree Architect, True Style Doors and Tanglewood Conservatories. Because as platform sponsors, these two companies, they've provided funding and support for our overall mission to become an influential force in this profession of architecture. They recognize the need for us, our small firms, to build better businesses in order to be better architects. And both of these companies are run by great people. They're passionate about their products and they want to share their knowledge with you. So they're sponsoring us. So connect with them. Say thanks for sponsoring Entree Architect, and then go specify their products. I would not be talking about them if they didn't have exceptional products. So go check them out, and by supporting them, you'll be supporting us. True Style is passionate about providing us small firm architects with the inspiration and the tools to transform our designs with the most distinctive, the most authentic, the most special doors you will find anywhere. With more than 400 made-to-order styles, True Style offers premium MDF doors for painted applications, that's what we use, and 20 standard species of wood across all architectural categories, from traditional to contemporary and everything in between. Every True Style door is made to order. True Style, driven by design. Visit truestyle.com and start designing your doors today. That's truestyle, T R U S T I L E.com. And Tanglewood Conservatories. They custom design and build authentic residential and commercial conservatories. They combine the romanticism of 19th century glass architecture with state-of-the-art technology and master craftsmanship. And whether your designs call for a pool enclosure, a gazebo, a greenhouse, or even a a unique light-filled living space, Tanglewood Conservatories will help you create a custom masterpiece for your clients. Tanglewood Conservatories, anything else is just another room. For more information, visit tanglewoodconservatories.com. That's tanglewoodconservatories.com. So go check out these companies today and let them know that Entree Architect sent you. Can you walk us through a typical project and, and the process of how you work? from beginning to end, and if possible, can you, and you don't have to get specifics, but can you talk about how, how your, your fee structure works and how you get, do you get paid for each different discipline or is it a one price for everything? Okay, um, sure, and of course, the, the um, speculative work is one price for everything. I mean, basically, and it's a different, it's, it's a different product there, and I like the word product, yeah. Uh, there, because that's really how we feel. We're, sell- we're selling a product. We're selling a home, and yes, architectural fees and interiors, everything is on the sales price. So that's that's a little package out there that works all by itself. And, and are you selling those speculative projects fully furnished, complete, ready to go, or do you, do you how do you sell them? Well, no, we have not quite gone into that direction. Even though we have participated in several. 
show homes yep. uh, yeah. and, and here in the area cooperate homes and other other events like that and we do furnish those and they those are purchased with furnishings but on our speculative homes is largely because they they sell too soon but and then we engage with a client right. but yeah. we don't have have gotten in the situation quite where we're at the fortunately we're at the furnishing stage um, so that's a little different product in there, even though we're ready though, to kind of launch into that. And typically we do uh, work that way with the clients that buy our homes. And then so so how does the design side work, the, the client services side? Okay. Okay. The client services are what we call the custom uh, part of our business. Um, it's It works very much in the traditional basis in a sense, but I'll, I'll tell you a few of the, of the details of the differences. Uh, we, first of all, I don't like all my contract architectural services. So what I call it, since we're a design build company, I, and I've learned this over the years that I want to make sure that they understand they're, they're engaging a design build enterprise, that the final product is not going to be the design only. And it did happen to me in my early uh, career where I would do my design work that everybody wanted and then they'll go out there and bid it out and take right. it out. So right. I've, I've got some tools and a few things that I do to avoid that situation, even though I did very well. I would say that I would probably lose in the range of about maybe 10%, which it was very low. But after a while, I said, you know, I don't want to lose 10%. I mean, I, I, our resources are too valuable to uh, for, for not to go into a design build situation. So I, I took our contract um, and I'll tell you, uh, what I use is actually that we have ownership of the drawings until the job goes into construction. Okay, so that's one of the ways that I was able to achieve that. But so what I call my contract, whether architectural services or interior design services, I call it pre-construction agreement. Okay, so that's uh, that's our first contract. And the pre-construction agreement covers basically the design package. Uh, so that's uh, instrument number one contractually. And then from that point on, we move into the construction contract, which is a uh, form that I use uh, that has been promulgated by the state of Texas. And uh, so it's, it's a standard form. So I have not been using AIA documents, but I'm looking about possibly, um, and I've been in conversations uh, with the AIA, they just uh, put together another edition of their design build, which is has been a big step, but to, in, in my view is not quite uh you know ready for prime time <laughs> yeah. so i'm still using my um my approach to to move into a construction contract and let me tell you a little bit about our process um which is a little different than the typical you know hiring the architect um and then waiting until the architect's done to get the price and the cost of the house and, and so on so what we do at preliminary stage we prepare um, a cost estimate. We have a preliminary stage full set of specifications written. Um, full our interior design team is has a preliminary selection of every material, every tile, every appliance, every light fixture, every power flexor. Everything is selected, put together in a preliminary package, and has a cost. So at that point, you know the whole mystery of cost gets approached, dealt with, and then we move forward to do our construction, set of construction documents, uh, which through that process is where we fine tune, continue to fine tune the cost as we add and subtract, and we do what we call cost updates. So by the time we're ready to finalize the drawings, the whole issue of cost is really all news. The, our clients uh, really been uh, know about the cause. They've been working with us to fine tune that cause. So we very smoothly moved right into construction. There's not that whole, you know, that's usually the uh, the tough part of, of the business of the architect and the builder and everybody else involved is what's going to cost. Are we going to be able to move forward with our system that is just very smooth sailing? And is the um and you said it's two separate contracts. So you have a pre-construction contract, which is, a, is is basically an architectural services contract, but but you change the name of it. So the mindset shifts in the client. So they don't think it's a separate design and a separate build. It's all one thing. It's This is before construction and this is during construction. Uh, I love that. Um, it, is, 
are they are they percentage based? Are they flat numbers? I mean, how does that? How, how do you your your design fee or your pre construction phase? Mm-hmm. Um, is that an all in one price that that you're you're estimating for the client, and it just includes the design fees in in, in that price? Um, yes, um, it, it is. And, and remember this that. You're right that there's two contracts technically, but just look at the words on the first contract. It's called pre-construction. Right. So it really uh, they they work together and they're tied together as one. So when they sign the pre-construction contract, they know that there's a part two to this. So it really is utilized as one, and our clients see that, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I have not had any problems uh, at all uh, for them to to work that way. To your um, second question there, as far as uh, the the fees are done on a lump sum number, and I've been practicing long enough that I know that if I'm designing a, an 8,000 square foot house and I have a pretty good feel of the scope of work, we have discussed, discussed um, the, the cost of the project uh, pre-signing contracts. So by the time we sign the contract, everybody kind of understands where we're going. And the goals, especially us, we understand what the client wants and we're out there to perform this. So I, I have a pretty good idea of what fees to put there. I include our interior design uh, numbers in there. And then our contract has, uh, when it comes to furnishings and everything else, that that is done on a cost plus basis. So that one is done on a percentage. Um, but I lump sum the architecture. I've learned that uh, clients are a little fearful of the percentage um, and, and they feel so much more comfortable to know that there's a quantified number and uh, it's a large number but it's easy for them to um, to know that, that that it's quantified right and and that essentially having a construction side of your your business with estimators and having that experience of what a project is going to cost makes that much easier to know what the design side should be uh, from the experience of the years of experience, but also the fact that you know what the numbers are, uh, you know, for each project. So, so it's easier to give them that lump sum number. Well, that's a great thing, uh, Mark, about design build and, and you, and you sprinkle out there and tears and everything else. The key word here is control. <laughs> right. I mean, you and, and you know the word control can be a very negative word. <laughs> it has a kind of a somewhat negative con- connotation, but you know it, it's it's really from a very positive connotation of the word control is that you understand everybody, the client understands, we understand where we're going, and they are happy to relinquish some certain level of control to us. So that point of trust and confidence is very important. That's what branding is so important to us because when the client comes in, we're going to require a lot of trust being relinquished to us, which is that control that, yes, yeah, so we, we know where we're going with the design. We know where we're going with the cost. We know where we're going with specifying and, and so on. So, yes, that's a very important part of the process. Having that control also allows you to manage the experience from the client side. Um, can you do you do anything unique or specific with that control, taking you know, leveraging that that amount of control so you can manage the expectations and the experience of your clients? Well, um, yeah, it's interesting the way you put it about leveraging control is there's two negative words, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it, it is important how it's presented. Uh, to the client, um, but to to answer your question, it's it's really important that the control that we've been given, we've been blessed with, we be, we feel the responsibility and the burden of that control in a huge way in our organization, where it's it's strictly for the benefit of the client, and number one, and then secondarily, it will become our benefit. And I think when we put it in that direction, and let me tell you something that I've I've done in order for our brand to um, to work well, and for that trust uh, of that control from our clients is that I hear all the horror stories that you know you hear in cocktail parties from people that that build a home and like oh the change orders and the cost came in. 
and we didn't know and they told us this but then this turned out something else and by the way they never told us thing and i was nickel and dime with consultants and other things that i know you know so i over the years i've been gathering all those all those negative comments and such and i've made an effort in my organization to do away with them um so i'm very i'm very conscious of the fears that a client arrives with and through my presentation and my behavior through the process, we put all those to rest. So you're managing all that, all those pain points that that clients have, and you know those things come, those those things happen. But the but the way you're responding to them, the way you're you're managing them, uh, the way you've built systems around them to to be able to eliminate some of them, it makes makes the experience from a client's point of view uh, much much less painful, um, and then. Also, I'm sure that also leads to referrals, right? Because when the client goes through a process like that, doesn't experience all those uh, negative experiences, they want to tell everybody about it. Uh, well, absolutely. Yeah. But I tell you, uh, interesting that you bring up the word referrals. Uh, referrals are great, but I don't do it for the referral, okay? I really do it for a good experience to make sure that it's a win-win situation for our clients and us. And I tell you why I de-emphasize the referrals I personally think, and we can talk about marketing here, maybe on this session. Yeah, on that was going to be my next question, actually. <laughs> That's, uh, That's where I was can, leading. But probably it's a good segue into that. But I, I'm a strong believer, and I hear this from a lot of my peers, like, oh, you know, I got my referrals. No, I, it's all word of mouth for me. You know, and I hear those comments. And from my experience, uh, I feel that if I have to rely on my great clients, well, they're wonderful. They're wonderful people. They're super happy with their services. But if I have to rely upon these very busy people that have all things that are very important in their life to get my next client, I feel that that is not a really reliable way to do it. So consequently, I think that's great. And to me, it's one of the many pistons in an engine of marketing and how you get your next job. But to me, it's just one fraction of the equation. And so to me, the other pistons and the other uh, gears on this machine uh, is obviously a terrific website, um, lots of good marketing to social media. We do a lot of uh, advertising on magazines. Um, we we really hit in every direction. I mentioned to you about um, show houses that we do events. It's it's a big cocktail of things that that come into a marketing program. And referrals are are good, but it's is um, is definitely not uh, the number one thing or what we rely on to get our next job. But we always and I can tell you over the years, I I would say the the percentage of jobs that come to us because somebody referred us and somebody brought a job to us, it's a small percentage, frankly. Yeah. Um, what brings, what makes the phone ring is have a great brand and that you spread it around. That's, those are the other nine calls out of 10. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Marketing, having a good website, having a good story that people can, can refer and, and repeat. Uh, all very, very important pieces. What about, so So you do a lot of marketing um, and then the phone starts ringing. Do you have a specific sales process? Because I think sales is something that, that clearly is something that differentiates uh, or, or helps firms succeed because I think so many architects don't do sales or they're afraid of sales or they, or they don't even understand the sales process. What do you do that once you have somebody who calls, they say, I'm interested, I want to I work with you, What's, what's the process between that and signing a contract? Um, okay, <clears throat> so some of the lessons that I've learned, I'm, I am an okay salesman, okay? But um, I, um, I've been removed from that position because I give too many things away. I'm too <laughs> nice, you know? So I'm not the ideal uh, person that's so, so to answer your question, over many years, uh, I've tried to have somebody else in there. Uh, my wife, Susan, uh, which obviously has been is very knowledgeable about everything that happens in our, our company. She doesn't give anything away, first of all. She's your partner, your partner <laughs> in the company, right? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And, and we've worked together for, for many years. She's got a career in real estate. 
she's a real estate broker. And so part of her work also works a lot of in, in, in selling of our homes, uh, especially at a speculative product. So we have another separate marketing part on how we approach marketing and selling um, a speculative home, but, but marketing your brand, which is also very important for a speculative work. Um, she is the one that receives the calls and she knows the company. She knows costs. She knows everything. She knows the story and she is the salesperson. So I think it's important that one should have a very good person picking up the phone. And if you're uh, as a principal, that person, that's good. You know, if you do have all those tools and such, but if not, you should be the first one to recognize there might be some other people that might do it better. And, but additionally, I think that there's a great benefit, um, uh, and it works for us that way, that um, Susan sort of brings and works all our prospects into, in, into the uh, presentation uh, of our contracts and such. And there's where I come in. And so I don't come in into a picture until pretty much the deal is already done and sold. So my salesmanship, it just finally dresses up the thing and legitimizes everything. And we have a very good conversion rate uh, with that approach. Yeah. To that's that's great. I mean, recognizing your strengths is really key to success, that, that you recognize that you're not the lead, you're not, that's not your strength. And so you have somebody who's very good at it doing that. And then you come in where you are strong, strong with your personality and, and your expertise uh, and wrap things up at the end. Yeah, I'll tell you a little bit. Uh, one of the, you know, the challenges that we have in our in our company here, um, which also become part of our, our strength, the fact that we can rely on our construction team to implement things. I'll tell you two of the possibly weak, weak areas that we are very conscious in, and need to continue to work on that for a design build company is that since you control again uh, the design part of things and you control the construction, it's too easy for the construction arm to be talking to the design team and say, hey, easy up, don't, don't throw these heavy challenges to us and such. And that's a really risky area to have a to create the proper balance and similarly where you know the architect is talking to the construction guys and, and you know that that battle that happens typically on the more traditional uh, relationship between architect and builder I mean happens with us internally and is it's very important for me as the principal to make sure that that takes place and architecture stays intact. And when I say intact, um, there, there's a two-way street there because it's important that the designers also listen to the construction people about some of their challenges and, and why certain things. And that's the tough balance, that, that it that becomes the right balance that ultimately that ultimately our, our clients and customers, they're the ones that gain out of this balance and out of this dialogue that happens internally. That sometimes it might or might not happen um, in, uh, in the more traditional relationships between architects and builders. Yeah, that, you read my mind, Luis. That, the, teams was exactly what I wanted to ask you about. Is, is you, it's a very large firm. Um, how many people in the firm? Um, there's just a little over 30. Yeah, and, and they're on construction side, they're on the architecture side, they're in the interior side, there's realtors, there's estimators, you know, there's staff people. Um, do you have any, how do you, how do you, what is your communication process like? How, do you have a specific process that you go through to make sure that, that the architecture does stay intact when it gets, you know, when it gets through to the construction side? Well, there's a lot of systems in place. This is an entire network of, uh, of procedures and systems that we have that we've been fine-tuning, you know, for 30-something years, and and it never stops. I mean, that fine-tuning is always in, in evolution. But, um, yes, the systems are very tight in how we prepare things for the client first. And as I was mentioned to you, as we prepare the preliminaries, interior designers need to be in place, making selections, estimators in place, and all those systems as we move through the preliminary part, what we call design development, uh, preparing the drawings, then starting construction, the pre-construction stage, the early construction stage, and so on. All those different stages have, 
you know, checkpoints and areas of interaction. And primarily, I'm huge in communication. I have, um, that's one probably areas that is my strength is communication. I, 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 I'm a strong believer on it. So I have everybody on a high level of communication through video conferencing, through, um, you know, the challenges doing these things uh, on three different cities at the same time. They are, you know, three hour, three to four hour drive apart from each other. Um, and so video conference is very strong, uh, having a central um, server system where everybody can access all the different uh, forms and checklists and everything else is important. But most important is the face-to-face -face communication, which thanks to technology could be done, uh, you know, in rooms like this where we are right now, and we have a similar room uh, over in, in our Houston office. And whether it is all the architects getting together, all the interior designers, or the teams and projects to enhance that communication. I want to point out some things to some of the people who are listening to us. My community is mostly small firms. They're, they're 15 people and less, typically. Uh, a very large majority are five people or less and sole practitioners. Um, and the things that I talk about and the things I bring to the community over and over and over again are the things that you're talking about. You're a $20 million company. You're talking about building systems. The systems are a key to your success, having the right teams, knowing your strengths, marketing, branding. You said branding multiple times and knowing your story and how that story fits the brand. All of these things that, that we talk about, a very specific target market, right? You, you, you do high-end residential custom architecture. That's it. You don't do... You don't do uh, other types of residential architecture. You don't do commercial work, very specific target market. So all of these things over years, uh, and obviously I'm, I'm sure there's a plan in, in place that sort of got you to where you are and to where you're going. Um, all of these things lead you to this successful company. And not everybody wants a $20 million company with two or three offices. Um, but even if you wanted a small company with five people in them, um, and you want to have enough money to pay your bills and to go home happy and to live a successful life, it's the same formula. We have to do these things. They're not, op not optional. And so that's why I created Entree Architect. That's why I invite people like you, Luis, onto the podcast to talk about these things, to remind us that we need to be doing these things. We can't just sit behind a drafting board and design great architecture and wait for the phone to ring. And I think that's the, been the formula for so long for small firms. Um, you need to be more intentional about building a strong business. And then once you have this strong business, then you can go back to the drafting board and doing the, do the things that you love to do. Luis, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your knowledge here uh, and sharing what you know. I, I really, really appreciate you being here. Thank you very much, Mark. It's been my pleasure. Yeah, I want to I ask you before you go, I want to ask you this, um, this one question the, that I asked everybody recently in the last five or six, maybe seven episodes, we've been asking this question. What's the one thing that small firm architects can do today, something small and actionable that might have a significant impact on them tomorrow? Um, well, okay, that's a very good question. I'm sure we've been talking about a lot of those. Yeah. those but if we were to kind of put it into, into, into one, I, I would say that probably uh, communication, uh, it's, it's, it's key. And since our, our audience is, uh, architects and small architectural firms, you know, that communication and, and I'm speaking as a design build firm that is very integrated, you know, talk to your team, your construct, your contractors, uh, learn about construction, uh, be involved, communicate and create those kind of networks, uh, that it doesn't have to be a company like mine that they're in house. But they're out there and that level of communication, like you mentioned, uh, let's, you know, step aside from being in front of that keyboard and, and doing design time in the hours and hours that we do and spend it out there in the field. Uh, I think that that connection uh, of architects with the construction industry is very important. And I'd like to leave everybody with this message. I really think design build is the future of our industry. And uh, so pay attention and, and, and connect to the other networks of people before they eat the lunch of the architects. Yeah, I agree. Um, if people wanted to get in touch with you, they could go to uh, howtogearchitect.com. That's J-A-U-R-E-G-U-I-Architect. 
right? Correct. So it's J-A-U-R-E-G-U-I, architect.com. He's all over social media. Does I mean, you guys do great social media, great marketing. Facebook.com at HowToGeeHomes. You're on House, great House profile at Inc. So it's uh, uh, J-A-U-R-E-G-U-I-I-N-C. And Twitter.com, uh, you're Howdygee Archi- Architect. So it's Ar- Architee. Uh, so it's J-A-U-R-E-G-U-I-A-R-C-H-I-T uh, on Twitter. And, uh, and active on all those social media platforms. So reach out. Uh, if anybody has any questions about Design Build, I'm sure, Luis, you're, you're available to answer questions, right? Absolutely. I, I love to share uh, some of the knowledge that we acquire, and I like to learn from everybody else. Uh, I've been doing a lot of presentations at the AIA convention and the NHB uh, IBC. Uh, so look me up on those presentations where I have uh, an hour, hour and a half presentation on Design Build. Yeah, that'll be great. I'll see, I'll see you in Orlando. And, I, you know, come hang out with us at CRAN, people. Come, yeah. come join us. In, we're going to Miami this year, so uh, come hang out with us. You can meet uh, Luis and myself. We'll be there. And Luis, thank you so much for hanging out with us here at Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you, Mark. Complete show notes and a direct link to download this episode will be found at entrearchitect.com slash episode 146. And that link right there, entrearchitect.com slash episode 146 would be a great link to send to a friend. Send it to a friend who might be interested in learning about design build and what Luis here has shared with us today. entrearchitect.com slash episode 146. Share it with a friend. Hey, and don't forget to watch your inbox for 50% off our four most popular products here at Entree Architect starting today, the 25th, and ending on Cyber Monday, November 28th, 2016. It's a Thanksgiving offer, and this offer is only available to subscribers of my free weekly newsletter, The Entree Architect Report. So watch your inbox, and if you're not subscribed, head over to entrearchitect.com newsletter and get on the list. What are you waiting for? It's a great newsletter. EntreeArchitect.com slash newsletter. My name is Mark Arlapage, and I am an entrepreneur architect, and I encourage you to build a better business so you can be a better architect. Love, learn, and share what you know. Happy Thanksgiving, and thank you for listening to Entree Architect Podcast.
I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There's a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.